I'm glad that you're here. Please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. We've been looking at a study uh, from the Old Testament about uh, the cross, uh, called Prophets of the Cross. And so we've been looking at some different passages that speak about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. Next Sunday, of course, is Easter. We'll be looking at uh, an Old Testament prophecy or word about the resurrection. Uh, so please come join us next Sunday for Resurrection Sunday for Easter. And I want to reiterate what Gabe said about uh, coming. For those of you who are a part of Fullness historically, you know that we've done community services, Good Friday services with other churches in our cities, and they got tired of us, so they kicked us out. So we're doing our own. <laughs> it's only kind of partially funny, but... Um, Anyway, we're, first time ever, we're having a Monday, Thursday. Anybody know what Monday means? M-A-U-N-D-Y? Monday? <laughs> Jesus? You know, 90% of the time, that would be right, but wrong. No, that's not what it means. So, anybody? Monday actually means commandment. It's from the Latin word that means commandment on the Thursday night. I'm, am I stealing your thunder? Gabe, are you going to talk about this? Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. If you want to know more about it, come Thursday night. Moving along, Isaiah chapter 53. Anyway, we're having a Monday, Thursday service, so I hope you'll come to that where we will uh, celebrate communion uh, together. And then the Good Friday service, we're having a service of shadows called a tenebrae service. So come Friday night. Uh, it'll be an awesome time, 6.30, 7.30, both of those nights. Uh, as we've been looking at this Prophets of the Cross, we've looked uh, at these Old Testament passages, and we started by talking about abounding grace. That really, if you, it, it, as remarkable as it sounds, the first prophetic words about the cross come from God himself as he's speaking to Adam and Eve right after the Garden of Eden, after they've fallen. And he talks to Eve about um, you're going to have a descendant, an heir, who's going to crush, he's really talking to the serpent, but he says, he's going to crush your head. Uh, you're going to strike his heel, he's going to crush your head. Yeah, he'll strike your heel, you'll crush his head. There you go. And uh, speaking about the cross, that he'll strike at Jesus on the cross, but really by even his striking, that it will crush the head of the enemy. Uh, so we saw the grace of God being talked about in that first prophetic word that God gives Adam and Eve and the serpent, the enemy. And later on, he shows it when he makes the covenant with Abraham, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. And then we talked about last week abounding praise. We looked at another passage uh, from, this time from the Psalm, Psalm 22, one of the great prophetic messianic psalms that if you read it, it you're like, this must have been written after the cross, not before. Uh, where it begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words Jesus spoke on the cross are proclaimed in Psalm 22. And we talked about the praise that comes as a result of, of the cross. And then today I want to talk about abounding love, uh, going to another prophetic passage. And hopefully you'll, you've seen, these are, these are considered different types of literature from the Old Testament. Historic, uh, the Genesis account. Uh, the psalm, a, a wisdom literature of praise, and now we want to look at a prophetic passage, uh, the very famous 
Isaiah chapter 53. And also, if you look, the Abrahamic covenant, that took, about, took place about 2,100 years before Christ. And then David's psalm of praise was some 1,000 years before Jesus came. And then today, we're looking at this passage from Isaiah, which probably occurred sometime in the 700 years before Christ. I mean, it is just remarkable to me, remarkable to me how God's design, how God's plan is unfurled in the Old Testament. Uh, I've said before that I believe that Jesus is, is the interpretive key that unlocks the entire Old Testament, uh, that by looking at these passages, we once again come to a place where we see God's grace, we praise him for who he is, and we receive his love. When I was in seminary, there seemed to be this continuing debate going on, and I'm sure it's continuing even today. And the discussion that would take place among students and sometimes among professors in and of itself was, was this question. It, is healing in the atonement? Is healing in the atonement? For some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. Is healing in the atonement? The idea is, is through when Jesus atoned for our sins, when he, as we're going to see today, he went to the cross, he died for our sins, he paid the price for our sins, he atoned for our sins on the cross, is physical healing a part of that? And there would be this debate going on, is, is, is healing in the atonement? And many conservative Christians would land in the place to say, no, healing is not in the atonement. And what I came to realize is that for them, the people who would state this is healing in the atonement, they really didn't believe in healing at all. <laughs> so they, did, they couldn't say healing is in the atonement because that would, you understand, that would say that physical healing is still for today. Uh, for me, a lot of it got settled when I discovered this passage, and I'm sure they knew this passage as well, from Matthew, which says this, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now, we'll see in a moment that this passage that he is quoted from Isaiah chapter 53, has to do with the cross. And so for me, it settled this issue, is healing in the atonement, to a place where I came back to a position of saying, yes, I believe there's healing as a result of the cross of Christ. Then I started hanging out with charismatic people. I'd been with the, the conservative people, and they were like, well, there's no healing in the atonement because they didn't believe in healing. Then I got hanging out with charismatic Pentecostals, and uh, they not only said healing was in the atonement, they said everybody's healing all the time was in the atonement. Now, that didn't sound right to me either, uh, because I was with people who were getting prayer, and they were still getting sick and dying. And so it was like, what, where do I land? I felt like a pendulum. No, yes, no, everyone, no. So I, I eventually got to a place where I do still believe healing is in the atonement. The challenge is this. Sometimes that healing isn't going to take place in this age. In other words, I do believe in praying for people to be healed. I still believe people get healed. 
I don't understand totally the sovereignty of God, why some people get healed and some don't. I, I can't answer. I don't understand why when I witness to people, some people get saved and some people don't. I, I don't understand why there are times people get emotionally set free and other people. I, I don't understand all of the dynamics of God. All I know is that I believe everything that we need for this life is provided in the cross of Christ. Everything. Not, and if we don't get it in this age, we'll get it in the one to come. You know, because sometimes when I pray for people to get healed, they get healed. Sometimes when I pray for people to get healed, they get healed later. Sometimes when I pray for people to get healed, they die. And I'm like, you know what? They're healed. I know that's crazy talk. It sounds like a cop-out in some ways. Uh, but I, I believe that everything we need is provided in the cross of Christ. And, and what I want us to see again and fresh and anew this morning, now listen, if you've been in church for, you know, probably more than five or ten years, every Palm Sunday people preach on the cross and many more times during the year, and then next week they'll preach on the resurrection. And so you go to church, but at the same time, you know, I know what he's going to preach on today. He's going to just dial it in, this thing on the cross. Yes, you're right, I am. But here's why. Because the longer you're part of Christianity, as a follower of Jesus Christ, many times we move on to what we think are deeper things. You know, like, I gotta, there's other things I got to know. That Listen, I, I want to make sure that we never get far from the cross. Because as you do, if you do, you'll start to actually believe that you're self-sufficient. You'll actually start to, to believe the deception that I can do this. I can handle this on my own. I've got the Christian thing down. I know the rules. I know the stuff. And yeah, I, I, I can do this. I'm, I know all the stories. Listen, the further I get along the way, the more I keep coming back to the foot of the cross. Because I realize everything I need is really there. And if I get too far away, I'm, I'm going to shipwreck. And so today, I want to talk about this incredible passage from Isaiah. In Isaiah, there are these four, they're called servant songs. Uh, they start out with having to do with the servant of the Lord, the servant. Uh, and and they use the phrase servant. And the last one, really the greatest, I believe, is this it begins actually back in chapter 52, verse 13. And so let me back up and just read the lead-in the lead-in to you. And it says this. It says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled by him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. This passage leads into, and it kind of gives an overview of both the exaltation and that's going to come, but at the same time, the disfigurement, the pain, the suffering that the servant will go through. Now, uh, for, for almost... I say almost, for a great deal of history, uh, anybody who looked at this passage, even uh, the Old Testament uh, Jewish scholars would have said this refers to the coming of the Messiah. 
And then you're going to see Isaiah 53, which is so, for us as followers of Christ, which is so clearly talking about the cross of Christ that we come to a place where we say, how could they have missed this? How could they have not seen through the cross and following that this is, this is really Jesus? Franz Delich, who is a famous, Keelan Delich, are famous commentators, and he said this, How many are there whose eyes have been opened when reading? In how many an Israelite, and he's speaking of the, uh, the Jewish pe- people here, he said, In how many an Israelite has it melted the crust of his heart? It looks as if it had been written beneath the cross upon Golgotha. It is the unraveling of Psalm 22, which we looked at last week, and Psalm 110. It forms the outer, excuse me, it, yeah, it forms the outer center of this wonderful book of consolation and is the most central, the deepest, and the loftiest thing that the Old Testament prophecy, outstripping itself, has ever achieved. A lot of words to say, this looks like it could be written at the foot of the cross. How many people have read this, especially from the Jewish perspective, and it's melted their hearts? I would say, I believe what he's saying, but at the same time, I don't think it melted as many hearts as it should have. Because there was this expectation that the Messiah would be a conquering hero and not a suffering servant. This view from a Jewish perspective that had gained. And then afterwards, around 1000 AD, 1000 years later, the the leading Jewish commentators started referring to the servant in Isaiah as the nation of Israel, not of the Messiah. So they reinterpreted this passage, these passages on the servant to actually mean themselves. We're the ones who've suffered. We're the ones who, and we're going to be exalted someday because of our, do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, they overlooked this passage, but for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray brings us back to a place to see what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Without getting into all the ins and outs and some of the deeper things, I think just looking at it from the perspective of the cross written 700 years before Jesus ever showed up, will bring us to a place of wonder and a place of life. So let's look at what was accomplished, what God provided for us on the cross. First, uh, he was rejected so that we could be received. He was rejected so that we could be received. And I just want to walk through this beautiful passage, this beautiful uh, and horrific at the same time language of Isaiah 53 says, starting in verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus was rejected in every way imaginable. 
I mean, just in this passage, it talks about his message being rejected, the preaching of Christ being rejected, the, the arm of the Lord, meaning power. His power was rejected. Uh, his appearance, he had no beauty. He was rejected. Everything about him, his person, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was rejected in every way possible. Rejection is an underlying theme of this passage. I mean, when we, we look at the, the New Testament, for many of us, we think at times, oh, if I could have just been there with Jesus, it would have been wonderful. You know, I, I would have incredible faith if I could have just walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and listened to Jesus. And, and my faith would be, you know what I want to say to you? No, probably not. Probably not. Why? Because he was rejected by the religious leaders. He was rejected by the scholars. Ultimately, his own followers fled from him during this week coming up. I mean, he was rejected in every possible way. He, what's remarkable to me is that he came, God came to earth knowing he was going to be rejected. At times, I can't even get my head around it. That God, the infinite creator of the universe, would take the form of a man. That's one thing. But hundreds of years before he ever even shows up, he gives this word that, hey, I'm going to come. I'm going to be there, but you're going you're to reject me in every way possible. Listen, rejection. Psychologists will tell you. Rejection is one of the major themes of our society and troubles today. There was a study, um, a lot of different studies that have been done on rejection. There's one called a ball-tossing paradigm, which you may have heard of. You get three people, let's say, um, let's say me and Adam and John Kerry were standing up, we're tossing the, a ball around, the three of us, you know, you're just tossing it around. Well, uh, unknown to John, me and Adam have determined, after we toss the ball around a few times, let's never throw it back to John. Let's just you and me toss the ball back and forth without telling John. So we're in on it. So there are two out of the three or four that are in on it, and there's one person left out. Psychologists have discovered within minutes, minutes of being rejected, this thing comes upon people. They start to, men usually get angry. Um, they, they start to cover their rejection, say, hey, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter or they get mad about it. Women start to engage even greater, talking more, smiling more, uh, trying to win back approval. Um, it, it, they've got all these studies that show gender. But the, the difficulty is every, that person feels rejected, and as a result of just tossing a ball, they start to act different do things in a different way. They've even done studies where, where a person is playing against a computer and the computer starts playing with another computer and not them. And they feel rejected by the computer. I mean, the spirit of rejection is so right standing at our doorstep that we do major things in life, major things in life to try not to get rejected. 
We arrange our lives. We buy certain clothes. We buy certain cars. We do certain things in order not to be rejected. We'll even, if we think we're going to be rejected, we'll align things so that we're rejected, but at our own choice. I know that sounds crazy, but people will actually say, you know, they're going to reject me anyway, so I'm just going to be a stupid idiot so that they'll reject me, and I know they'll reject me, but at least I know why, because I'm the one controlling being a stupid idiot. You think, I, I mean, it's true. People will, we're crazy about this whole rejection thing. Jesus came to earth knowing he would be rejected, but you know why he did it? He did it so that we would be accepted by God. Listen to this passage from Ephesians. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father, sorry, starting about the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted, accepted, received as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Do do you see it? Do you see it that because of Jesus, because of his rejection, because of what he did, we get adopted? I mean, I'm not just talking accepted. It's, It's one thing to be accepted into my friend group. It's another thing to get accepted into my family, right? I mean, it's a whole different level of acceptance. God received us. He adopted us into his family. And and listen, I don't know about your family, but once you're in the family, you're in the family. You understand? I mean, really, you're you're in. And, And we do really stupid things in family. I'm not talking about my family. My family doesn't do. But let's say they had done something stupid. Um, let's say they had, and you would say, oh, he's, that person is out. He or she is out. No, they're still in. They're still because they're family, right? You have been received. If some of us would ever catch this, that I am adopted as a son and daughter of God, yes, I didn't deserve it. I, I did nothing to get in. Christ did it for me, but once I'm in, I'm in. If when you were enemies with God, God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you, now that you're a part of his family, this is from Romans, by the way, how much more does he love you? How much more? All right, that's the first point. Second, and that's a good one though, right? I mean, really, for a lot of us here today, if we could just break this spirit of rejection. And you're going to break it by receiving the truth that God loves you, that God loves you. Christ suffered and died so that you could be forgiven. He, he, was, he wants you to know how much he loves you. Forgiven is a good thing, right? I mean, I think being forgiven is better than not being forgiven in any set of circumstances. Going on in verses 4 through 6, he said, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. I mean, this passage alone should should just stir our hearts. Pierce for my sin. Pierce for my transgression. Crushed for my iniquities, the things I've done wrong. The punishment that brings me peace, where was it? It was on him. He took it on himself. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He suffered so that we could be forgiven. I mean, we, I, I can't even really go through the, the weight and suffering of the cross. We talked a little bit about it last week without getting overly graphic or gory. We can't even comprehend. No movie, no book, I think, does it justice to talk about his being beaten and bloody and the suffering that he endured. Listen, I, I'm not real, I, I have a confession to make. I, I'm not real good with blood. I mean, personally. I'm not real good. If I have to get blood at the doctor's office, I have to look away. I can't look. Uh, I get really lightheaded. Uh, I could be going down, you know what I mean? Uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, before my dad passed away, uh, he was in uh, the Walmart parking lot, and he stumbled and fell. We're not really sure what what caused him to fall. He was, at, well, he was at the Walmarts, as my dad would say. Um, he always said, he and mom always added the and S at the end of Walmart, the Walmarts. Um, and he was at the Walmarts, and he uh, stumbled and fell, cut his head. I get this call. I was half asleep in my recliner. and Police call me, say, hey, your dad's fallen. We get there, my wife and I get there, and, you know, a head wound, it just... It just bleeds. So um, my dad's bloody. He's standing up, and he's like, I don't know what happened. I just fell, and the police, paramedics, I mean, it's like, you know, they call, it's a whole parking lot full of fire trucks and police cars for this one older man. <laughs> I see my dad. I start to get lightheaded. You know, all this blood all over his white T-shirt, and, and I'm like, I said to Kathy, who went with me, I said, Kathy, I'm going to have to sit down. And so I get in the front seat of my dad's van, sitting down, and the next thing I know, the paramedics are talking to me. Sir, are you okay? Sir, are you okay? They've given up on my dad. I'm passed out of the front seat of my dad's van. Don't call me if you really have blood everywhere. I mean, we can't even picture the suffering that Christ took on, the anguish that we, he went through. And, and, you know, we, at many times, we, we struggle with this truth of how could the Creator, the God of the universe, allow Himself to, to go through this? I mean, He could have, you know, called angels. He could have marshaled. He could have just spoke a word and just annihilated everyone. I mean, He's God. But He chose to go through that suffering in order for our forgiveness to be received. 
the sin of the entire world, the iniquity of us all was on him. What a crushing weight. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We need to receive the forgiveness that is ours. I mean, think about it. You are forgiven. I mean, it's just awesome to think about. What do I have to do to get more forgiven? Nothing. It's already been done for you. The penalty was on him so that I could receive total and complete forgiveness. Now, two things here. One, I need to take responsibility and, re- and acknowledge I have sin in my life. I have, it. I have iniquity. In other words, to say, we're, we're, we live in a dismissive society, right? Not my fault. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. My mom was an alcoholic. My granddad, my great-granddad, I come from a long line. I'm not trying to talk and say there's not genetic predispositions to stuff, but at some point, we have to acknowledge my sin is my sin. My failure is my failure. And that's hard for us. We want to just justify it by blaming somebody else. We need to receive the truth that I have sinned. But the even greater truth is this. Christ died for my sins and I'm forgiven. As remarkable as it sounds, that iniquity has been placed on him. Different artists at different times. This is Rembrandt's um, The Raising of the Cross. The Raising of the Cross. And uh, different artists at different times have recognized when I'm painting the cross or I'm expounding on the cross, it's my sin that put him there. So if you look at the foot of the cross and see the, you can't really see, but see the guy in the beret kind of thing? That's Rembrandt. He painted himself into the picture saying, I put him there. I'm the one who put Jesus on the cross. In more modern context, Mel Gibson, when he did The Passion of the Christ, it's his hand holding the nail that's being driven in into Jesus. He wanted us to recognize, we, we need to recognize that it is our sin, our iniquity that put him there. But at the same time, to recognize that in that suffering, I have now received forgiveness. For some of us, by the way, the reason I'm hammering this a little harder, and I'll move on here quickly in a second. For some of us, we have never really acknowledged the weight of our sin. You know, we, we sense that there are many ways that, that I've, I've messed up a little bit, you know, but really I messed up because somebody else made me mess up. Um, something else happened, and rather than just standing in the weight of our sin and saying, it was me. Some of us need to stand there. Now, for some of you, you need to get out of there. You know what I mean? You, you, you're so beat up over your own sin that you can't move forward. So for some of you, I, I would say, receive the truth that you, you sinned. But more importantly, receive the truth that you're forgiven. You're not still there. And you're like, well, you know, I'm not really good enough. You you never were good enough to get out of there. Jesus did it for you. He's the one who suffered so that you could have life. 
Third point, he was condemned so that you could be righteous. He was condemned so that you could be righteous. I don't want to give my hand away here too soon, but let's read this passage and then I'll explain. He was oppressed, starting in verse 9, still in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The death of Jesus Christ, I would say, is the greatest miscarriage of justice ever. I mean, think about it. I can say, you know, I'm, I'm not guilty. We see a lot of this lately. It kind of, from a distance, I don't want to say cracks me up, but it just shows me the nature of humanity, for instance, where you have these parents who have been paying for their kids to get into elite colleges. I'm sure over the last couple of weeks you've read about it. Some have pled guilty, but there's others who are saying, no, I'm not guilty. No, you're you're really guilty. But they're choosing to say, I I, I didn't do anything wrong. Why? Because they're justifying. Well, I really wanted my daughter to get into college. Who did I hurt? I paid a half million dollars for some guy to pretend he took the test. He didn't take it. But, you know, it really, it really was for her good, and nobody really got hurt. We, we, don't, we don't ever want to receive what we deserve as far as condemnation is concerned. By condemnation, I mean the guilt that, that should be ours. Jesus received guilt that was nothing to do with him. He was totally condemned. But for what reason? Look at the phrases here. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was unblemished. An innocent lamb, unblemished, no deceit in his mouth. Why did he receive this condemnation? Listen, it's great to be accepted, right? I'm a part of the family. It's awesome to be forgiven. But it's miraculous that you are declared righteous. Miraculous. That you are, God looks at you and says, you're righteous. Oh, I, I know I'm not. But God looks at us through the cross of Christ, his condemnation, and he declares us right. Right with him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We, I, I know you've heard phrases and terms like this before, but, but because of the cross, you're right with God. Once you're right with God, you're right with God. Once he declares you righteous... So let me get. It's one thing to stand before a judge and he said, you know what? Um, you're not guilty. You're declared not guilty. It's another thing to stand before a judge and say, you know what? Not only are you not guilty, you are totally right in every way. And God looks at us and it's one thing to say, hey, you're guilty, but you're forgiven. Now you're made right. 
you did this. Yeah, you did it. But I'm forgiving you of it. You go on your way. But not only that, now you're totally good. You're totally right. Everything's good between. We can't even do that. You know, I mean, think about it. In your house, somebody offends you. You say, okay, I forgive you. How long till things are right, though? You know what I mean? How long till things are like the relationship is good again? For those of you who are not married, you will understand someday. It can be a long time. It can be a journey to get back to being right. God looks at you, and through the cross of Christ, he said, you're right. We're good. That is so unbelievable to some of us. We just can't. We can't get it. We can't get it. You know, um, in, in Tale of Two Cities, Dickens tries to paint this picture of, without going into the whole story, you know, best of times, worst of times. Um, it's a far, far better thing I've done than I do than I've ever done. You know, the whole thing, if you've never read it, it I, I love the story. One guy who's not guilty, who looks like another, he takes his place. He takes his place and dies, goes to the gallows. I think it's the gallows, but he dies, takes the punishment on himself because there's a Christ picture in here. And I think it leads to the final point, which is this. He was crushed so that we could walk in victory. He was crushed so that we could walk in victory. Look at the final verses, verses 10 through 12 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, and though, excuse me, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Let me comment on this real quick, going back to the verse before. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. A lot of people struggle with this. How could God the Father be in his will to crush Jesus, the Son? But really, what I see in this passage is it was Jesus' will to be crushed. I mean, really, he's God in human flesh. He chose to go to the cross. He could have stopped the process at any point. Yes, in the garden, he prays, Father, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, knowing that there was no other way. He willingly went to the cross and allowed himself to be crushed on the cross. But because of that, he sees the light of life. He sees the light of life. My righteous servant will justify many who bear their iniquities, but it says he will see the light of light and be satisfied. It's speaking of the resurrection before there's even a cross. He goes on and says, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Christ was crushed so that you could walk in victory.
accepted in the family, right? Forgiven. It's good. Declared right. Wow, that's even better. But now, because of this, I get to walk in a, I have a victorious Christian life. I get to share in the victory that is Jesus. We'll see more of this next week, but many of us are just enduring life. How am I going to live a victorious Christian life? How am I going to walk in this victory? Is that just for when I die? Is that just for when I, I pass away and I get to go to heaven? You know, there's that aspect I talked about very early on about healing being in the atonement. Yeah, ultimately, we'll all be made well. You know, I mean, someday we'll all be healed. But there's more of that now if we'll at least reach out and through the power of the Spirit that indwells us, walk in it. I think there's more healing to be had. Most of us aren't falling in the ditch on the other side of having, you know, too much faith. You know, for most of us, we need to say, there's more, there's more here than I'm experiencing, and I want to I reach out in faith and receive it by the power of the Spirit. I want to say that to you about the victorious Christian life. There is more to victory than you're experiencing. Now, I'm not getting into a prosperity doctrine kind of aspect here where you're going to be always wealthy and healthy and happy and everything's going to go great in life. I don't think circumstances depend, are, are the marker for your victory. I mean, I don't think... Life, yes, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome. Okay, I'm going to have trouble. But you know what? The troubles don't define me. The troubles don't color the state of my heart. Because of the cross of Christ, I walk in victory. I can walk in victory. I can lift my eyes off of the circumstances of my junk. And if I'll go back to the cross and look at what Jesus accomplished by being crushed for me, I get to in turn walk in victory. Here's the point. Some of you will walk out of here today and not one thing in your circumstances has changed. But I can tell you this, you can walk out of here with everything being changed. Everything. And it's not just wishful thinking. It's not. It is walking in the faith that what God said 700 years before Christ ever came has been realized and can be accomplished in my life today. All through the cross. So when I say we make too little of the cross... I mean, I know we've got it hanging around our necks. We've got it stuck up on our walls. You'll probably go out to your car, some of you, and then it'll be in your car somewhere. Listen, I'm not, I don't minimize the the iconic aspect of the cross. I, I think when you see it, it should remind you of these things. I am accepted as a child of God. I am forgiven. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and I can walk in victory every moment of every day. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Now, see, some of us, we've already talked about, okay, eternal life, that's a, that has to do with heaven. I, I think eternal life has to do with from now through eternity. Hello? In other words, do you know that right now you're walking in eternal life? 
if you're a follower of Jesus Christ? When did, if, if not, when does eternal life start? When you die? No, because I think death is just a passage. I, I think you're walking through a doorway into one existence, as Lewis has said and Tolkien and some other great authors have said. It's, it's just walking through. Eternal life, I'm walking. You're whacked, Pastor. No, I think I'm walking eternal life now. Victory is ours. Victory is ours. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on the tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing, by the way, given to Abraham, might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that we might, by faith, receive the promise of the Spirit. How do we experience a glorious, victorious Christian life now? Through the power of the Spirit. It's a gift. The blessing given to Abraham is ours in Christ Jesus. Because of the cross, we receive. One last passage. I know the theology here starts to get pretty thick. But he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. The passages are there. And again, in our 21st century American monetary view, don't look at rich as in like rich. You know, like Kardashian rich, that kind of rich. No, you got much more riches than, than Kim and all of them. You're rich in life. You are rich in victory. You're rich in spiritual blessings. You're rich in the family of faith. You're rich in the power of the Spirit that indwells you. Everything you need for life and godliness, according to Peter, has been given to you. Walk in it through the cross of Christ. Walk in your sonship, daughtership, your family relationship, walk in your forgiveness, walk righteous, walk victoriously. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the victory that's been given to us. Lord, I pray that today we would look back at the incredible words of Isaiah from 700 years before you ever came and to this earth as a man and say, wow, that is just incredible that the prophet, having no idea, probably, about the cross, hadn't even been invented yet, that you would suffer on our behalf. And this morning, Lord, we say how deep the Father's love for me, that you would send your only Son to die on my behalf, that you would be crushed, willingly endure suffering, and the cross, so that I could have all of these benefits. May we walk in them today. May we celebrate you. This morning as we close, we're going we're gonna to sing just about the Father's love. Uh, before I do, uh, go ahead and start playing. But before I, I, I pray for that, I sensed even before the morning started, before I did this sermon, 
that there are some of you who today are, are just pay attention one more minute with me. Just stay with me one more minute. Are experiencing a, a, a spirit of rejection in your life today. You're just really struggling, uh, either because of friends or family or just your own personal weakness. You, you are struggling feeling rejected. And, and there's a lot of it that's determining the course of your decisions. There's a lot of it that's, that's coloring the way you view things and some of the decisions that you make. And, and for some reason, I was just especially led to this this morning. I just want to pray for you. I want to pray that the life of God, the cross of Christ, the, the truth that you could, you could be you could be millions more in finances or something, but you would be no more accepted than you are right now in God's family. He loves you. You're fully accepted. What this spirit of rejection that the enemy is just trying to, I just want to pray that it would be broken. So you don't have to confess this, like raise your hands or stand up, but you know in your heart if this is something that you're dealing with right now. And I just want to pray for you to receive life and freedom. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling today, especially, particularly with the spirit of rejection. Lord, I pray that the truth of who they are in you, in your family, by the cross of Christ and the power of the Spirit, that it would break that spirit of rejection in their life. That they in faith would walk out the truth of what you've done and who you are. Lord, I pray for freedom. 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 Lord, I, I just feel particularly led to pray for the women of this place. That there are some who are struggling more than others. They've either been rejected or feel rejected from their fathers, mothers, their families of origin, maybe by friends in high school and college, maybe from their husbands or children. God, I just pray for, for life to flow out today. That the cross of Christ would touch the hearts. The blood of Christ would heal. That forgiveness would be extended. That freedom would be walked in. Thank you, Lord. Stand up with me if you would. For all of us today, may we just receive the deep, rich grace and love of the Father in our lives.